now with over 25 years of experience integrating mental health and spirituality, the author of Reclaiming Authenticity, When Ancestors Weep, and Redeeming the Bereaved. Here is Dr. James Houck. All right, everybody. Good afternoon, one and all, wherever you are in the world at this time. Welcome to Reclaiming Authenticity, Reclaiming That Which Has Always Been in You. I'm Dr. James Houck, and if you would like more information about me or if you want to leave me your comments about today's show, I invite you to visit the website. It is www dot reclaiming authenticity oh i'm sorry gave you the wrong one it's www.bbsradio.com uh back or forward slash reclaiming authenticity i'll give it to you one more time just make sure you got it straight it's www.bbsradio.com forward slash reclaiming authenticity there we go all right don't want you to give you the don't want to give you the wrong address. And if you uh, would like to be part of today's show, I'd like invite you to call in. I always enjoy talking to people. You may do so by calling the toll-free line. It's 888-627-6008. That's 888-627-6008. And I will be taking your calls in the second half of the show today. And uh, these shows are podcasted now. So if you want to, uh, aren't able to spend the whole hour with me today, or in case you want to go back and listen to other shows, again, all you need to do is just visit the website and you'll find the archived section and just click on it and you can find the dated show in which you would like to listen to. So, um, as I always state at the beginning of these uh, broadcasts, that uh, these uh, shows really focus on the integration of mental health and spirituality. And I place it all within the context of our relationships, the relationship that we have with ourselves, the relationship that we have with other people, and certainly the relationship that we have with God or the divine. And the whole reason why I place this integration of spirituality and mental health within the context of relationships is because uh, when you think about it, we often receive our deepest physical, emotional, psychological, and even spiritual wounds in and through very unhealthy relationships. And yet, we can discover our greatest healing, our greatest strength, our peace, forgiveness, and love through healthier relationships. Because, you know, these relationships just might be within our own families. And we don't have to look too far because we, you know, we are social creatures. We are relational beings. And so, you know, these wounds, um, you know, just might come from within our own families or coworkers and friends. But, you know, um, as we heal and we become healthier in our relationships, we discover that when we transform, we also transform others by our presence, our grace, and our understanding. You know, but first, this forgiveness, kindness, and compassion begins with how we treat ourselves. Because whenever we are more compassionate with ourselves, then we can be more compassionate with others. And when we are more forgiving with ourselves or of ourselves, we then can be more forgiving with others. And when we are able to live in gratitude with ourselves, we then discover how this opens up our hearts to see and live in gratitude with others. So all in all, transformation, first and foremost, begins with us and allows us to transcend our so-called limitations or our perceived um, inadequacies, perceived limitations, and takes us into uh, becoming uh, healthier in our relationships. And so whether the wounding that we have experienced, emotional, psychological, physical, or spiritual, whether that wounding was intentional or accidental, it is what we do afterwards once we've been wounded or that we may have wounded another person that will either reinforce those wounds 
or find a way to be healed and we can be free from those burdens. Well, in the Korean language, there is a word called han, H-A-N, which basically means the deep wounds of victims. In other words, when a person's deep wounds are not healed, these wounds often become vortexes of troubled waters, which can be intertwined with their own instinct of survival and fear. In other words, puts us into very unhealthy relationships because we just come from that wounded place within ourselves. And yet Han on a deeper level means a rupture of the soul. And this is where we have this internalized collective memory of victimization. I'll say that again, internalized collective memory of victimization that occurs over and over and over again. And this is one thing that I see in just counseling many, many people is that uh, there's always this temptation to go back into victimhood or just to become victimized all over again, because perhaps maybe this is something that we were used to and we don't know anything else but being a victim. But it's, uh, you know, also insightful that if this is where we go and we always internalize our pain and our woundedness and we often, you know, have this collective memory of victimization, uh, you know, we can find a way out. We can be healed from this. And this quote comes from the book, uh, From Hurt to Healing. And this is where uh, author Andrew Sung Park, he also describes Han this way. He says, imagine a woman is in a room where there is no door, there's no window. She panics and knocks at the four walls frantically. And after a couple of days, realizing that there is no use in doing this any longer, she gives up all hope and she begins to despair. Surrounded by the four walls, her life loses meaning and her spirit dies within her. And this slow death is what we call Han. Sadness, resignation, hopelessness, and despair are all parts of what Han means. So in this hour, anyway, we're going to explore the wisdom of life's irony, of how we often hold life's emotional pain and sorrow, that is Han, as well as the profound joy and peace and healing in our hearts, much in the same way a teacup holds not just tea, but also holds many stories of heartbreak, loss, love, and bliss. But let me ask you this question this fine Friday afternoon. What is your favorite kind of tea? What's your favorite kind of tea? Is it Earl Grey? You know, something you drink first thing in the morning? Is it mint? Is it oolong? Is it spiced chai, for those of you who are daring out there? And what about cinnamon tea? You know, and it just or lemon tea. You know, we just have all kinds of flavored teas out there. What's your favorite kind of tea? Okay. Well, apart from enjoying hot tea or cold tea, which is my favorite way to have tea, uh, do you realize that each day over 15 million Americans drink tea, whether it's hot or cold? Well, recently I came across an article, which I just found very fascinating. It was, you know, just the title alone just kind of reached in and got me. So it's like, I got to read more. And it was entitled 10 essential tea statistics to know in 2022. And it just goes down just a list of just these tea statistics. And it says that tea is the second most popular drink in the world. Okay, not bad. All right, I wonder what the first is. Uh, The Turks are world champions in tea drinking. And it would be interesting to know how they became world champions at this. Uh, Third, uh, uh, Unilever is the world's largest tea company. And I have to admit, I've never seen that brand uh, particular tea, but maybe I could do a Google search or something. Um, And uh, next, China holds 40% of the global tea market. 
Okay. And I'm sure you've heard the expression for all the tea in China. Okay. Which is probably right on because, you know, China holds 40% of the world's tea market. Now, here's one that's really interesting. Americans drank over 40, or I'm sorry, 84 billion servings of tea back in 2019. That's pretty incredible. And uh, 40% of U.S. tea consumers drink tea at either restaurants or other types of food service locations. And let's see, only 15 to 20% of the tea drunk in the United States household is hot tea. Interesting. Cold tea outweighs, or I should say, edges out hot tea. And the U.S. is the second largest importer of tea in the world. Okay. Now, because of the pandemic, wholesale tea now costs 50% more. And surprisingly enough, after you know COVID, the most popular tea is herbal tea. Okay, so add that to your list. When's the last time you had herbal tea? Or maybe you make your own, okay, and you grow your own um, mint and so forth, okay? But everybody does have a favorite style or a kind or a flavor of tea. Well, ironically, drinking tea has really served as a kind of bridge between different cultures for centuries, And in contrast to many other human traditions, it affects health in a very positive way. Now, the world, you know, we live in currently just, shall we say, shines an attractive light on the benefits of drinking tea. And, of course, if you remember your eighth grade American history class, people often remember the Boston Tea Party. And that's when the colonists basically had enough of being taxed by the uh, the British, and therefore, through the cover of darkness, threw crates of tea into the Boston Harbor. Well, since then, we, the United States, is the second largest importer of tea in the world. I think we got over that. Uh, so, um, interesting, to, nonetheless. But, you know, now the history of tea stretches back over thousands of years and covered vast regions such as the Silk Roads and all the, you know, all around the world from the 16th century to the present day. And these intercultural and interpersonal exchanges associated with tea have often been due to the activity of these traders and missionaries and maybe even physicians along the Silk Roads. I mean, that was just a major, major trade route. And along with these activities attributed to tea, there are also the exchange of ideas and goods and artisan objects that have made their way throughout the world. So, ironically, throughout history, tea has been a very interesting commodity that has brought cultures and people, customs and norms together all over a cup of tea. I recently saw a TED Talk. It was led by Alora Kriska. I hope I'm pronouncing your name. And um, she was talking about bridging the us versus them culture gaps that are caused by differences in nationality and gender and race and religion and many other factors. Uh, She said that in our increasingly diverse 21st century global communities, the ability to successfully bridge gaps is not a luxury. It's mission critical. And I wonder if perhaps tea could lead the way, since it has such a rich history of bringing people and ideas and other customs and norms together. Well, I remember the first time being in India and sharing a cup of chai with uh, the religious leaders I was meeting with or local merchants. And the chai that was served was always carefully prepared. And it was served with this reverence, with a sense of gratitude. It was definitely something that people took pride in. And um, I have to say that uh, this is what made me fall in love with uh, chai, spiced chai. It is quite delicious. And when it is made um, with care and, and is made just right, it is quite delicious.
Well, this was also the first time that I not only fell in love with chai, but I fully realized the meaning behind the Hindi greeting, namaste, which in other words, the is just transliterated, the light within me recognizes the light within you. Namaste. Okay. And you know, um, I hear that quite a bit in our culture. You know, people just, uh, you know, just throw that word out there, you know, namaste, or, you know, just in other words to say, hello, or how you doing, or what's up, or something like that. And we have, uh, you know, greeting cards with namaste on it and, and other uh, ways in which that word is used. And I don't know if I'm fully comfortable with the way namaste is often used. So, um, uh, just in a very nonchalant way, okay? And and this is what I mean by this. Um, you know, but since having to go to, you know, to India and so forth, I, I've meditated on this saying, namaste, and its meaning, and have come to appreciate a deeper level of insight and awareness. The light within me recognizes the light within you. And the more I sat with that, I'm I'm thinking to myself, well, I wonder if I flip that saying around in the English language, you know, turn it around and, and you know, I just might discover, you know, that namaste has a deeper meaning, which doesn't translate well from Hindi to English. So here's what I did. I was just sitting with this word namaste. And as I was just flipping it around and just meditating on it, I came to this conclusion, like perhaps namaste really means that I'm able to see the light within you, or at least the potential for you to realize your light, because I am first able to see the light within myself. Okay? I'm able to see the light within you, or the potential for you to realize that you're light, because I am first able to see the light within myself. I like that. You know, it, it does change its meaning ever so slightly, but it is a profound level of understanding. And, you know, th there is tremendous potential for all beings to recognize and embrace the light within themselves, as well as one another. And engaging in this integrative meditation, as I call it, compels us to sooner or later stop asking to receive things, but instead we ask to have unforgiveness and bitterness and or other negative attitudes to be removed. You know, so, and, and this is necessary because whatever is lying dormant in us you know, those things can be unencumbered to come up and come out in very transformative and very life-giving ways. You see, perhaps there's a lot more to consider about the power of tea in this matter. So think about the moments that you've shared a cup of tea with a friend or a family member. Okay? There may have been times when you had good news to share, or maybe you were catching up from old news, or even just sitting down and maybe not saying anything to one another because the sorrow was beyond words. But you know, uh, despite the fact that tea has this dynamic to bring people together, many people still feel alienated and alone. People have always struggled with sharing what's inside of themselves, believing that they have nothing worthwhile to say or let alone do. However, looking inside a teacup can teach us a lot about the need to look within and to see the incredible life and light we have been given to share with others. And here's the dynamic of looking at the bottom of a teacup. You know, consider all of the liquids that that cup has held. Hot tea, cold tea, tea with lemon, tea with maybe sugar and some milk. You know, the teacup has the capacity to contain anything that is poured into it. And so do we. 
I mean, we often think in isolated terms of it's either this or it's that. It's either hot or it's cold. It's either light or it's dark. But have we ever stopped to consider that we are able to hold extremes simultaneously? That we can hold hot and cold at the same time. We can hold light and dark at the same time and so forth. And what does this insight provide us? as we consider ultimately who we are as a limitless and vast soul. See, for example, um, I'd say many times we are tempted to isolate the utter horrors and pain and suffering throughout the world that we see. And we wonder about, you know, how there can be any joy in the lives of those who are dying or hungry or imprisoned or among people who do what they have to do in order to survive. And does, does any, you know, how does anybody have the nerve to talk about joy in the face of unspeakable human sorrows that surround us, or the unspeakable Han, the relentless suffering and the oppression that has ruptured the soul? And yet, therein lies the answer. Because for anybody who has had the courage to enter in to human sorrows in a deep and profound way, there is this greater awareness of joy and bliss to be found. Even when we are faced with utter ruin, dejection, and annihilation, there are still memories that we can share. Not only of our pain and sorrow, okay, but also the memories are filled with laughter and smiles and hugs and joy. And this is not based solely on what we believe to be, shall we say, successes, or even a rational way out of Han. But it is an inner joy that comes from the resiliency of the human spirit, deeply, deeply rooted in the relationships with ourselves, with each other, and God or the divine. This joy is fully alive in spite of the odds. You see, the teacup of life, so to speak, is a teacup of joy, as much as it is the teacup of sorrow. It is a cup in which sorrow and joy and grief and healing, mourning and dancing are never separated. Well, um, I'm sure you heard of Henry Nouwen. Uh, I've quoted him many, many times in these uh, broadcasts. But in his book, uh, Can You Drink This Cup? He writes, if joys could not be where sorrows are, the teacup of life would never be drinkable. If the joys could not be where sorrows are, the teacup of life would never be drinkable. And this is why before we take that first sip of tea, perhaps we pause and consider how we hold the cup. Before we take that first sip, look deeply and intently into that cup of tea and see the hidden jars and the hidden joys in our sorrows. See the mystery of hope and resiliency that can be discovered in the times of your own deep emotional wounds of Han. You know, how many times have we looked into our cups or into the cups of others and wondered where joy can be found, let alone where in the world did God go? I mean, how can I see the light in others when I, even, when I can't even see the light within myself, let alone where in the world do I find God? I mean, why do I have such a hard time seeing and hearing and knowing where God is in our lives? Well. How many of you out there have ever played peekaboo with a baby? All right. Good. You can put your hands down. Okay. <laughs> it seems like just one of those games that comes naturally to us. And it, it's true. I mean, it's funny. It's exciting. And I think we adults get more joy out of playing the game than the babies do. Because let's be honest, we love their expressions. We love seeing their little faces light up as they jump with excitement and smile. Sometimes they laugh and giggle and coo. Okay? Now, if you're playing peekaboo with a baby and they cry, well, I'll have to say that, you know, you're probably doing it wrong or maybe you got stinky breath. 
But at any rate, it's loads of fun. Um, in fact, I've seen some of the most hard-hearted individuals sound like complete fools when they play peekaboo with babies. And for me, I'm, I'm convinced that playing peekaboo is something we never outgrow. Because as we get older and as the babies get older themselves and into the toddler years, we play with the jack-in-the-box you know, toy with the little crank and the music. And then the monkey or the clown will pop up. And we laugh and we learn quickly when to anticipate the monkey or clown to pop up at the right time. I mean, kids figure this out pretty easily. Well, ironically, playing peekaboo helps children form these mental images of objects, such as remembering where their favorite toy is when it's under a blanket or in a toy box. They know they still have it. It's just not right in front of them. Or we hide our faces and say, oh, okay, where did I go? Where am I? Where am I? And then all of a sudden, hop, here I am. Well, ironically, we never outgrow this object permanence as we get older. Because what begins in infancy becomes more and more abstract the older we get. Such as being able to maintain a mental image of a loved one even after their death. And in order to do this, we have to form the context in order to see their faces or remember their voices. And the best form of a context we have are through stories. Well, let's take this concept of object permanence deeper into our relationships. You know, let's bring, it, let's bring God into the conversation here. Does God play peekaboo with us? You know, maybe not in a malicious way to hide from us where all of a sudden God jumps out and scares us, but maybe in a modified version as, you know, uh, a means for us to learn that perhaps in order to see and to hear and to touch God, we need to see and hear and feel with our hearts and our soul. Remember, it was Jesus who once said that the pure in heart shall seek God. And again, let's be honest, most of the time we want God to be someone or something for us instead of allowing God to be who God is and realizing that it is we who need to be transformed in order to see and to hear and to touch God more clearly than before. But have you ever noticed how God really loves to show up in the most unlikely places in and through the most unlikely people? I'm convinced of this. God shows up in the most unlikely places in and through the most unlikely people. And you know, the, the first time uh, this lesson was driven home to me was when I was having lunch with my college classmates. And I can't remember to this day whether or not we were drinking tea, but we were having lunch nonetheless. And as we were talking and catching up with one another, the subject somehow, some way, became you know, about listening to God in prayer, or you know, how do we do this, or when do we do this, and and so forth. Well, when it was my turn to share my experiences, a student from Africa stopped me as he held up his hand and uh, stopped me right in the middle of my sentence, and he told me that I was doing it all wrong. And I was like, "Say what? I mean, I got offended." Like, what do you mean I'm doing it all wrong? I've been talking to God all my life. And it was at that point he held up his hand again, which was starting to get annoying, but he held up his hand again and he replied, that's just it, Jim. You do all the talking. You never take time to listen to God. And you know what? He was right. I didn't like it. But he was right. I did do all the talking. And it seemed like from that moment on, my whole life, my whole awareness shifted. Instead of praying with my head and from my thoughts and my logic, I now started to pray from my heart. And ultimately, from that soul connection I have with God, I still do that to this day. In fact, I started to see and hear all the layers of woundedness in myself that I really didn't like. And again, not in a malicious way that God brought all these things to my attention, but instead, 
I was being shown all these things that needed to be healed. All those psychological, emotional, and spiritual wounds that clouded my sight and, and sound of seeing and hearing the Spirit of God more clearly in myself and my relationships. You know, Mother Teresa, she was one who prayed all the time. And uh, she was once doing an interview. And um, I don't know whether or not the, the, the interviewer was uh, a believer or not, but uh, he just came right out and asked her, you know, like, well, uh, what do you say to God in your prayers? To which she paused and smiled and just, and just very, you know, quietly said, nothing. I listen. And this, you know, kind of perplexed the interviewer. And he goes, well, then, um, what does God say to you? Nothing, she said. God listens. What a difference that made. Because when I realized what she was saying, you know, because when I prayed with my heart and soul, I quickly discovered that God did the same thing. We were communicating to each other, heart to heart, soul to soul. You see, it's, it's, it is being in tune with God on a soul level in which we discover that words are not even needed. In fact, you might even say that there are times when words get in the way. And this is true in our relationships with, with each other. Because there is tremendous potential for all beings to recognize and embrace the light within themselves as well as the light within one another. And engaging in this integrative meditation compels us to sooner or later stop asking to receive things, but instead we ask for things to be removed. Remove unforgiveness in me. Remove bitterness. Remove other negative attitudes. And so this is so that whatever is lying dormant, the good stuff in us, can be unencumbered to come up and come out in life-giving ways. Well, I would really, really love to hear your heart on this matter. So again, if you want to call in, I invite you to. That number is 888-627-6008. And I'll be taking your calls after the break. Again, you are listening to Reclaiming Authenticity, and I'm your host, Dr. James Houck. Be back with you in one minute. Okay, welcome back. I'm Dr. James Houck, and you are listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. Again, a word about next week's show. It's entitled, The Voice of the Compassionate Heart. The Voice of the Compassionate Heart. And so I'm going to be looking at and discussing, um, probably a better way to, to, to say it, uh, the life and times of people who have had that compassionate heart, who that's where they led their lives or, or led from their lives, uh, being able to speak to people with a compassionate heart, or what does that look like in today's society? And even when, you know, in today's society, that um, are there limitations to that compassionate heart when people uh, just flat out reject it? So we're going to be talking about that, the voice of the compassionate heart. Well, in the uh, first half of the show today, I was talking about how often we are tempted 
to isolate the utter horrors and pain and suffering throughout the world that we see. And when we do this, we often wonder, you know, well, how can there be any joy in the lives of those who are dying or who are hungry or who are imprisoned or even among people who, um, you know, do what they have to do in order to survive? I mean, how does anyone, as I said earlier, have the nerve to talk about joy in the face of unspeakable human sorrows, the sorrows that surround us, or the unspeakable Han, which is the relentless suffering and oppression that has ruptured the soul? Are we being insensitive when we bring joy into this conversation? Or are we being insensitive if we bring joy through our very presence? Well, therein lies this transformative truth, because for anyone who has the courage to enter into human sorrows deeply, there is this greater awareness of joy and bliss. Even when we are faced with utter ruin or dejection and annihilation, there are still memories that we can share. We can still share memories not only of our pain and sorrow without minimizing it, but also the memories that are filled with laughter, smiles, hugs, and joy. And again, you know, not based on solely on what we believe to be successes, you know, where we point to something outside of us or even like a rational way out of, well, how do we get out of Han? But is this inner joy that comes from the resiliency of the human spirit deeply rooted in relationships that we have with each other, God, or the divine. In other words, this joy, this peace, this bliss that can be found in the midst of horror and sorrows and pain is fully alive in spite of the odds. See, the teacup of life is the teacup of joy as much as it is the teacup of sorrow. It's a cup in which sorrow and joy and grief and healing and mourning and dancing are never separated. And I quoted earlier the, the book, Can You Drink This Cup by Henry Nouwen? And he writes that if joys could not be where sorrows are, the teacup of life would never be drinkable. Well, I've shared with this audience uh, many times uh, the stories of when I've been to India four times in my life, and each time I learn something new about myself, and um, you know, or learn something about others, and especially learn definitely where and when God shows up. And I'm convinced that God just loves irony, again showing up in the most unlikely places through the most unlikely people, and there God is. Well. I only know a few simple words and phrases of Hindi, but it was connecting to others on a soul level, that, that, that soul level that allowed us to truly communicate from who we are. From the simple gestures of folded hands and a gentle bow and greeting each other by saying namaste, to be given a cup of tea from an elderly woman who wore her hardened life on her hands and in her face, a heart-to-heart, soul-to-soul connection is truly where God shows up. And this was clearly the lesson I learned from my last trip to India back in December of 2019. And, and like I said, being my fourth trip, I wanted to do more intentional soul-related experiences that I haven't done so much in the past. And little did I realize that God heard that prayer and God responded by saying, okay, you want to see more of me, then you're going to need to stop, be quiet, and pay attention to the ordinariness around you. Now, I'm a pretty big guy, and it's hard for me not to stand out in the crowd. So to go to India unnoticed and go through India unnoticed, that wasn't going to happen. You know, people would certainly look and wonder, what in the world is this dude doing here? But it became more about just, a, you know, a random person's desire to be a blessing to me that taught me to not only be more intent in looking for God in the ordinary acts of kindness, but also 
this is exactly where the extraordinariness of God shows up. There was one time that um, I had set off to find uh, Babaji's cave. I wanted to visit that in Kalkachina in the Himalayas. And um, sad to say, I didn't make it to the top because, well, my knees are not in the best shape. I'll have to share more about that whenever I get a knee replacement. But um, I did make it up three quarters of the way up the mountain. And um, I just kind of tapped out at that time and just said, okay, as far as I go. But the view was spectacular. Um, and, and of course, already being a mile and a half up from sea level, we're another mile up. So the, the air was a little thin, just something I wasn't used to. So anyway, came down from the mountain. And when I got down to the, the base of the mountain, an old woman who lived with her son and daughter in a very humble dwelling, she gave me a cup of tea and gestured for me to sit down, or maybe she thought I was going to fall down. But at any rate, the kindness in her eyes as she handed me this tea touched my soul. And again, another time I visited Vatsalya Gram, the ashram in Vrindavan, where they were offering free cataract surgeries for people in the town or other places, like whoever could get there. You know, they, you know, there's just something that they do several times throughout the year. And, um, you know, the doctors, the surgeons donate their time, nurses donate their time, recovery people donate their time. And um, they performed, when I was there, they were performing over 300 surgeries in a few days. And as I walked around the ashram, uh, I saw families living in tents and makeshift shelters, all to be close to their loved ones who were having surgery that week. And as I was walking around, the families, and especially the children, would invite me to sit with them and have tea or to share a simple snack. I mean, they're all filled with smiles and gratitude to share what they had with a stranger. And of course, we have to share a photo. You know, they was like, photo, sir, photo, photo. So, of course, we took pictures and I had to show them and which, you know, got the children laughing and giggling all the more. And I wasn't sure who was blessed the most, me or them. Because although we didn't speak each other's language fluently, we did share this soul-to-soul connection. Well, I also visited with the children who lived there at Vatsaya Graham. And knowing that kids in general love music... I took my Native American flute with me. It's the same flute, uh, the one that you hear at the beginning and the end of these broadcasts. And I played for these kids. You know, I visited with them for about an hour each day, you know, after their studies were done and everything. It was maybe about four o'clock in the afternoon. And I would play and they would return the blessing for, you know, by singing for me. And these were, you know, ages five to seven, and even the teenagers that I spent time with, they offered a song and just were all smiles and just very much in gratitude to share what they had to share. Well, one day I visited a house where the mentally challenged kids lived. And again, as I you know, taken my flute, I, I played for them and I noticed that their eyes widened and their little toothy smiles were visible. And interestingly, at one point I was playing, there was a young boy of about eight, nine years old, somewhere around there, who was born without his sight. And his back was turned to me, and as I was playing, I started to hear that, who's singing along with me? You know, he was just kind of humming and, you know, just as best he could, mimitate or um imitate, mimic, there we go, uh, the, the tune that he was hearing. And one of the grandmothers, uh, you know, and the mothers and the aunts who were actually the caretakers of the children, but one of the grandmothers, uh, they were all astonished and pointed this boy out to me. And I just went over and I just held his hand afterwards. And again, he smiled and, um, you know, I just knew that that there was just something special that he had heard. And I was told later uh, through an interpreter that this boy had never sung before. But when he heard the flute, that that singing just spontaneously came up from within. And the kid had a beautiful voice, I have to say, a beautiful voice. 
everyday examples of where God shows up. Giving a cup of cold water, giving a cup of tea, a kind word, a smile, or even simply sitting with another in silence. When you have done it to the least of these, you have done it unto me. When we are able to share a cup of tea that contains all of our life experiences with one another, and they do the same with us, I imagine, I just get this powerful image that all of heaven is just doing backflips at this time, just filled with joy. And you know, God isn't really asking anything difficult from us. You know, the whole, the whole bit, of, you know, visiting the sick or the people who are in prison, or giving water, or feeding people who are hungry. These are all things that we are capable of doing. But what makes these ordinary acts of kindness transformational is that God shows up, and then it becomes extraordinary. Grace-filled moments, teachable moments, life-changing moments. As we reach out to others in the physical sense, we also are touching them in the spiritual sense. And you know, we often make it harder or more complicated than what it needs to be. But yet God kind of reminds us, he goes, you do what you can do. I'll take care of the rest. And if you ever want to see the extraordinary grace in action, pay attention to the ordinariness of life. See the extraordinariness of God in the ordinary, tangible holiness, as it were, as we pay attention to how, when, where, and in whom God shows up. So where have you experienced the, you know, discovered God in the most unlikely places, in and through the most unlikely people? Where have you been part of those ordinary blessings and been part of God's extraordinariness? Have they occurred over a cup of tea? You know, it certainly doesn't take a lot of effort on our part to, to see and to hear the pain of others. And we don't have to look no further sometimes than within our own families or within our own communities to be reminded that pain and misery, suffering runs so, so deep. It's something that we all have in common, regardless of race, creed, color, language barriers, even social distancing. But we also have in common our strength, our humanity, our love, perseverance, grace, joy, and the stories. See, we hold both in this shared humanity. Just like a cup can hold something hot like coffee or something cold like iced tea, when it's shared with another person at just the right time, could just be the difference in the world that the person needs to be reminded that they are not alone in the world. I once, um, this is years and years and years ago, but I once read a story about a youth group who held various fundraisers in their community to raise money to visit another church community in Central America. And it took them several months to raise enough money for all of them. You know, I think there was 10 of them in the group and their leader to be able to go on this, this trip. And about a month before they left, as they were doing the countdown, it's like, okay, we have enough money for everybody. Air, air tickets have been purchased and so forth. About a month before they left, the leader could not get in touch with the church. It, it seemed like all forms of communication had stopped. Well, instead of postponing the trip, the leader decided to take this little group of teenagers with him to the village like they had planned. And when the group arrived at the village, they couldn't believe their eyes. The whole town was devastated by an earthquake. And the only building left standing, somewhat standing, was this church. And they had arrived on a Sunday morning, and the youth group, heard singing from a distance coming from inside this church. And the group walked over and opened the doors and walked inside. And almost immediately, the singing stopped. And everyone in the church looked around in amazement at this little group of kids. And the pastor, who spoke very broken English at the time, he walked down from the front and he asked this group, Que pasa? 
which roughly translated means, what in the world are you kids doing here in a place like this? Well, the youth group explained why they were there and how they raised money and brought some basic medical supplies with them. Well, the pastor who was listening to this, he was in tears at this point, and he explained what had happened to the village since the earthquake and how they had been asking God to send someone to help them. And when the pastor was finished, there was one teenage boy in the group turned around to another with a big smile, and he said, "Ah, how about that? What do you know? I never thought we'd be an answer to prayer. You never know where and from whom the extraordinariness of God is going to show up in the everyday ordinariness. How many times have you considered yourself an answer to someone's prayer by the simple acts of love and compassion? So the next time you have a cup of tea, before you take the first sip, pause and consider how you hold that cup. Do you embrace your cup the same way you hold others? And before you take that first sip, look deeply and intently into that cup of tea and see the hidden joys in the midst of the sorrows and see the same for others. See the mystery of hope and resiliency that can be discovered in the times of your own deep emotional wounds of Han. If giving a simple cup of tea to another person can make all of heaven applaud, just imagine what occurs when we see clearly the light in others because we first are able to see the light within ourselves. I'm Dr. James Houck, and you have been listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. Thanks for spending this hour with me today, and be sure to drop me a line and let me know what has touched you about today's message. And until we sit with each other again, may we always look for the light in others as well as the light that lives within ourselves. Take care. For an answer, or just to leave a thousand comments, or prodding to buy a book by Dr. Hauk. It's all there. Just wander on over to reclaimingauthenticity.com and click around. And we'll see you next Friday at noon Pacific time on PBS Radio TV.